0: The Reducing Crime podcast features influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. During his extensive policing career, Dr. Ian Stanier was head of the Human Unit at the UK's National Counterterrorism Policing Headquarters and has been an informant source handler, controller and authorising officer. We talk about covert human intelligence sources and the challenges of their management during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm your host Jerry Ratcliffe, and welcome to Reducing Crime. It's time to bring the curtain down on the guest theme bit, and next month we will be back to the original theme, which was the outro to the classic British police show The Sweeney. But before wrapping it up, I thought I would leave you with the guest theme you just heard. This antipodean police drama might just be one of the longest-running police shows you never heard of. Starting in the early 1990s and running for 12 years across an incredible 510 episodes, The first season alone had 45 episodes. The series was set in a small Australian town and featured young police officers who are, according to a review in one newspaper, thrown into the deep end where they are left to sink or swim. Yeah, that sounds about right. Did you guess the show? I'll give away the answer next month. As for last month, well, if like me you're of a certain age, then that was an easy one, being the unmistakable Kojak. This month, I had a chance to catch up with an old friend who actually graduated from Pendon Police College in the same cohort as I did many moons ago. During a much more illustrious police career than I had, spanning over 30 years, Dr Ian Stanier developed specialist intelligence in several operational areas. He was the head of the Human Unit at the UK's National Counterterrorism Policing Headquarters and has been a covert informant source handler, controller and authorising officer. He was instrumental in the development of the UK national intelligence model and the College of Policing's authorised professional practice on intelligence management. Ian is chair of the National Police Chiefs Council's Intelligence Practice Research Consortium and an academic advisor on the National Crime Agency's Human Academic Hub. He retired from policing as a superintendent and Ian is now a senior lecturer in the university system where he runs graduate programs in covert investigation, specialist intelligence and counterterrorism. In the following chat with Ian we talk about a couple of his recent publications with co-author Dr Jordan Noonan, who is now a serving Metropolitan Police Officer in London himself, Covert Source Recruitment and Management, and Dedicated Source Units, those are the groups within British Policing that handle informants. He also touches on Guantanamo Bay, the East German secret police and British spy Kim Philby. The most meaningful contribution I make to the conversation is a brief anecdote about that one time I met a bloke in the pub and a thrilling tale of finding a book in a library. Good grief. And, uh, mate, it is nice to see you. No, it's great to see you. I mean, it's uh,
1: going to be 32, 33 years now, isn't it? I mean, when we started.
0: Yeah, mate, 36 years. Gosh, it is, yes. This is the part that I think is incredible, is that you and I were at training school at the police academy at exactly the same time, 36 years ago. And you went on to have this illustrious career as one of the leading people in the country on covert human information sources and i fell off a mountain after 10 years and ended up an academic in the states i mean it's the weirdest career path for both of us do you know what i mean but you've done pretty well out of it though well you've got a lot more hair than i have you <laughs> bastard
1: oh yeah how for how long it's all started to turn gray now
0: so uh there you go but um, it was a really great career i mean uh, i'm sure you enjoyed it was it was it limehouse you're at was it h yep h district in the east end of london but you, i mean you went on to become superintendent well i suppose i've if- turn the clock back a bit when I I first joined obviously I was like anybody else uniform
1: patrolling officer in in, in West Ham in the East End on shifts and I moved toward a crime analyst when it used to be done by police officers my career pathways tended to follow the area of intelligence I've been football intelligence England football intelligence public order intelligence prison intelligence handler of informants a controller of informants I think you're getting the message here, Jerry. I've, I've tended to stay in that, that, that area. Yeah, stop being, stop being a
0: generalist and can you focus on something for your career for once, will you? <laughs> <laughs> so after West Midlands, what happened? After West Midlands, my final posting there was as a result of a secondment
1: to London. So I was working at um, New Scotland Yard. Uh, I then left, tired, and I went into academia. And so I run program lead for a number of terrorism and security and intelligence-related courses. But I did a number of secondments, so I ended up as the head of the counter-terrorism policing HUMINT
0: unit. Imagine we have some brand new undergraduate students listening. Explain to them what human is.
1: In simple terms, uh, HUMINT is the intelligence that agencies collect from human beings. And now they might do that as because they're informants, or they collect that because they're, they've been deployed as undercover officers. It might be that they are interacting with people who are prepared to give what was Known as Queen's Evidence, uh, so assisting offenders in the United States. I believe you call that cooperative witnesses. Yeah, we, we don't have a lot of Queen's Evidence over here. It's not a particularly popular term. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So human's an important uh, intelligence collection. It's not the only one, as you know, with signal intelligence and the like, but it's, a, it's an important one, and it's probably one of the oldest intelligence collection disciplines that's uh, it's been around since uh, day one.
0: And I think people underestimate it again. We get a little fixated with technology and toys and wiretaps and phones and, inter- and intercepting email messages, but sometimes it just you just have to be speaking to somebody who knows villains, right?
1: Definitely. I mean, you're right. It kind of falls in and out of favour. For example, in the the United States, former CIA head, uh, Admiral um, Stansfield-Turner, came in and moved the organisation towards technology and satellite and made significant cuts on their um, clandestine and human capability. And I I think it's the same in the UK. There's been a marked decline in the number of people who were handling informants. If I put that in perspective, we're talking about uh, Roger Billingsley's research in in the 90s found that in 1995 there were just over 43,000 registered informants in England alone. And now we're around about 2,500.
0: Why Why is this? We've got this fantastic support source, we're supposed to be more intelligence-led, and yet it seems like this is just falling out of favour.
1: There was a, a big uplift in the 90s after the Audit Commission in 1993 spoke about the need for more intelligence-led policing, proactive policing.
0: That was really a review of policing generally that said we need more intelligence on criminals and offenders.
1: Absolutely. It was the early days of intelligence and policing, which as you know, eventually kind of culminated with the National Intelligence Model, which you know is a UK um, business model which focuses on how we manage our intelligence better. But one of the kind of key determinants I think really was the fact that there was increasing concern about how we went about our business in covert investigation was human rights compliant. There were question marks over some of the issues around corruption and
0: integrity. I mean, this has always been one of the areas of policing that's been a little bit murky. It's been a bit of a moral maze. It's almost a philosophical question, which is there's going to be intrusion around, we're going to be running up against informants who are closer to that ethical line around policing, aren't they? Much more so than response policing. You know, somebody called 999 in the UK or 911 in the US and we rock up and we try and solve their problem. This is us being much more proactive, but it also takes us closer to an ethical line. So I, I suppose that kind of sparks my question, you know, are, are the benefits still outweighing the negatives in here we are in 2021?
1: Absolutely. I think the so-called tension has probably been overstated. The reality is that some of the human rights principles, which are universal, the kind of principle of proportionality and necessity, making sure what you do is in accordance with law.
0: Yeah, and that sense of proportionality around let's not mount a major surveillance operation against like a 13-year-old burglar or a 15-year-old who does a bit of shoplifting.
1: Yeah, I mean, the shoplifting analogy is good. Actually, if a 13-year-old burglar, burglar is prolific, then, you know, you've got to bear in mind if he's breaking into two or three houses a day, you know, what harm is he causing to the rest of the community? So the age you know, the age issue is, is not so much
0: um, at play there. You don't think age is going to play a role in that? I just think about it from the public perception standpoint. I, I think... Or, or are there different measures of where we would consider proportionality to kick in?
1: It, you know, there's been fourteen-year-olds who have been involved in planning to kill people. You know, remember the sort of Melbourne plot, right? You know, there's been children acted as suicide bombers. It's each case on its merit. What danger does that thirteen-year-old pose to themselves, to the people around them, and, and, and to the community? That will be the determinant. It's whether it's serious enough. Clearly. What needs to be done is that can we consider alternative methods? It might be simply a knock on the door. You know, you're aware of, of work where just knocking on the door of kind of people on the periphery of organised crime is enough sometimes to um, stop them from doing something.
0: Yeah, the visit that lets them know that they are known about and then they're not acting in anonymity is an amazingly underappreciated piece of proactive policing that I just don't think enough places think about engaging with. You know, I got, have you thought about knocking on this guy's door and telling him to fly straight?
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of ways of skinning a cat, but there are occasions when the criminal activity that is being planned doesn't lend itself to any form of investigative tactical method apart from covert policing. What's clear is that if there is an alternative method, that will always be embraced first, generally, right? Uh, because of just the expense. Now I know surveillance seems very around the world, but if you're, you know, the, the cost of running fifteen to twenty surveillance officers round the clock is extraordinarily expensive you know if a knock on the door can do the same thing
0: well especially if the goal is to have them desist from crime rather than often the the goal is unfortunately the output which is can we arrest them whereas the outcome you know what if we can make them stop committing crime because you know they thought they were flying under the radar and they're not that's got to be the the, the real goal that i think a lot of people in policing would be happy with
1: absolutely absolutely and i just probably want to stress there that you know, covid investigation sits on the margins of policing now I, um you know when you joined the police hold on a minute when you and i joined the police back in the neolithic era right yeah. swinging the blue lamp here but you know you didn't get in to become a detective or join a crime squad if you weren't able to evidence at least one informant that was uh, been working for you and now you might be in a force of many many thousands of uh, police officers and police staff and maybe only a dozen pairs of officers Officers are running informants. It is on the margins there.
0: So what's changed in in that regard? I mean, back in the day when you and I joined the job, as I say, no internet, no cell phones, borderline electricity in some parts of East London. But you had a very simple process where it was hardly anybody was really kind of almost registered. If you got an informant, you basically ran an informant. There was a great skipper in the East End of London. I won't mention his name. Don't want to get him jammed up, even though he's no longer in the job. But I used to go along with him and meet some of his informants over a pint in the Three Tons pub. And that was just how it was done. It seemed very ad hoc and you just went ahead and did things. And now there are all these different types of processes and regulations that have been brought into place, at least in the UK, I can't say for what the situation is in other countries.
1: I think that i probably go against what a number of the practitioners are currently doing the role thing here, but I actually think there's some scope for the running of informants outside of a dedicated source unit. I don't think we necessarily need to go back to meeting people in the pub when you can actually meet them in other locations which are safer and more conducive to the elicitation of intelligence.
0: In some places in the US, there are no regulations in place for this whatsoever, but it's a very uh, structured system in the uk so you've got dedicated source units but there's also you've got handlers you've got controllers and you've got authorizing officers this seems awfully bureaucratic it could
1: become bureaucratic but there are actually there's some significant benefits that fall out of that so what is a handler for each informant there will be two handlers okay and there's a number of reasons for
0: that when you meet the informant you can have someone asking the questions, someone taking down the notes you Because it's important that they build a rapport with people, right? It's a very much a personal, this is a very personal business, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. It's one of those things, it's a sort of, it's a professional relationship and it's that fine balance between the, leave them with the impression that you're their friend, but the reality is you're not their friend. The controller is somebody who oversees, it's normally a supervisory rank, who oversees all those informant handlers to make sure they're doing their job right. They will be checking the intelligence reports that are generated as a result of the meetings. And at the next level, there's something called the authorising officer. And that's the senior detective, relatively high within a, a precinct. And they're the ones who, in essence, sign off the legal authority. And I think this is quite unique in the UK, is the fact that there's bespoke legislation on covert investigative practice. Speaking to colleagues in Europe, in in, in the Far East and in the States, that isn't actually the case. It's Informants or confidential sources are generally regulated through internal policies
0: most places don't have any kind of legislation or very little legislation around this whole area so it's down to the individual department to figure out what their policies are and when you've got say in the states 18000 departments you can imagine the majority of them don't really have much in the way of policy around this area
1: yeah. i mean what's probably worth stressing and what's again what's quite unique is the fact that our single piece of legislation the regulation federal powers act actually applies to not just law enforcement but all public authorities so I would have used the same legislation as MI5, MI6, GCHQ,
0: the National Crime Agency. So what's been happening during the pandemic I mean you know the work that you've written about is how informants are essential pivotal and vital to some areas especially things like drug supply and domestic extremism and terrorism I mean, these are not bullshit areas. These are areas of, you know, we could argue a borderline to some degree regional or national security. And now one of the major sources of information is drying up to some degree or is becoming a lot harder to manage because of the pandemic. Yeah. You did this really interesting work where uh, you surveyed and spoke to over 200 people who worked in these dedicated source units. What are some of their experiences?
1: Yeah, I did it with Dr Jordan Noonan. I think the first one, the nature of the relationship between the informant handler and the informant themselves changed because previously the interaction was all about what intelligence could they give them. But what became as important was actually, how were they getting on, you know, in terms of their mental health, their well-being? Some of these informants, you know, the the money they got through the provision of information was kind of important to the housekeeping, and these brought on additional pressures.
0: Yeah, well, that's one of the things I think is really interesting is, you know, we talk how much about we want policing to be a science, but if there's one area where it's still a craft, I think it's really in this area of informant handling, because now a pandemic comes along, and you've got these informant handlers are really looking to get intelligence and information out of their sources... But a whole piece of this now becomes, you know, you write about the importance of helping the informant's emotional survivability and and financial support. I mean, the financial support I get, but the emotional support, that really surprised me. If you don't have a relationship, I can't see
1: that relationship lasting or being as productive as it possibly could be. So a lot of time is spent on not only developing but maintaining the relationship because if the informant is happy with their handlers, that's when you get the best productivity. It sounds very clinical, but you get the best intelligence. If you can use anything to elicit intelligence, be it rapport, then you've got to embrace that. Falling out of the scandals around the black site in Guantanamo Bay and the enhanced interrogation techniques, a lot of money was ploughed into research around elicitation of intelligence, predominantly led by CIA, FBI, and defence in the States. In other words, how
0: to get the best intelligence out of people. Do we encourage it out of them, or do we beat it out of them?
1: Yeah, and, and this might surprise many listeners, actually, but you can get far more intelligence by being nice to people, by establishing rapport, by speaking to them. You know, if you're smiling, you're shaking hands, you're, giving, you know, you're having a chat over a cigarette... You're conscious of their non-verbals. These all start to contribute towards a more meaningful and fruitful interaction.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to read that. You know, even though their motivation is because you have something on them, because there are charges pending against them, in the long term, building that rapport is actually more important for eliciting information out of them. I found it interesting because it goes back to that old TV trope of good cop, bad cop. And actually what you really need is you're going to be more successful with good cop, good cop. Bang on, mate. The issue about
1: coercion, I was reading some research that was taken from the STASI files.
0: And just for clarity here, we're talking about the East German secret police back from before the Berlin Wall came down.
1: Absolutely. What they found was that when they deployed blackmail or coercive methods, it was probably the least productive. People either escaped over the the wall to West Germany or they could see there wasn't kind of genuine cooperation. And if you're going to coerce someone, how long is that relationship going to last? It's not going to last very long.
0: How was that possible given lockdown restrictions being reduced capacity to meet? How were informant handlers able to do that to actually keep supporting the people that were providing the intelligence that we needed?
1: Lockdown meant those physical meetings were significantly reduced because even some of the venues that were previously used were were closed. So there was a shift towards the use of the telephone. You could still speak to the... Your informant there, and there was wasn't any sort of health
0: considerations in relation to that. I'm sure for some people that it was actually easier once they'd already had a rapport, right? It was it was easier to sometimes just sneak away for a telephone call than to uh, than to go for a clandestine meeting somewhere.
1: Why go to the expense of arranging a physical meeting when actually you can ask the same questions over a telephone? It's safer and it's cheaper for, for all concerned. The one area which the research did flag up, which was quite interesting, was. Whereas the, the rest of society ended up embracing technology, kind of the pandemic acted as an accelerator, it didn't seem to do that for the, the handling community. Well, I've got, you know, eight-year-old plus parents, and they were using online shopping and using Zoom. Whereas in the informant management community, embracing of digital technology
0: did not appear to take place. Yeah, I've even been able to video WhatsApp with my 90-year-old mother. Or to be more accurately, the top of her head because she hasn't figured out where the camera is in relation to her head. But, you know, it's a it's a conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, look, and I do appreciate embracing technology isn't as simple as I've just said it there because you can't just embrace any technology. It's got to be secure. Because the last thing you want to do is to use poor craft and then leave your informant vulnerable as someone looks at their phone or their laptop and there's a sort of um, audit trail back to law enforcement. That's the last thing you want to do. So maybe that's part of the reason why it didn't move as quickly as the rest of society.
0: One of the other things I noted from the article was that this actually provided some opportunities, which I hadn't even thought about. So I did the same thing as a bunch of people during the pandemic. It's like, all right, I'm stuck in a house on my own, and started reaching out to people that I hadn't really spoken to in a while to say, hey, touch base, how are you doing? Just to increase the kind of scope of people I was having contact with. It was interesting that some of the source handlers saw that as an opportunity as well
1: a wonderful example of how the informed handlers were ad- adapting to the situation. They said, okay, what can I do? And that might have meant they might have undertaken further research of some of the targets that previously been spoken to. They might have started to plan for future recruitment once the the worst of the lockdown was lifted. I think they dusted off some of their tradecraft methodology that perhaps hasn't previously been used before, such as dead letter drops and brush contacts. What do we mean by that? Well, I think if you look at John Le Carrier's Smiley's people or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Or-
0: My favorite author of all time.
1: So, you know, I'm not giving anything away there, just basic tradecraft that previously was used, but has kind of fallen out of favor. Those two methods offered an opportunity to maintain communication without physically meeting. So it's worth explaining that a uh, dead letterbox
0: is a location where you can leave something for me and I can come past another time and pick it up and vice versa. Explain what a brush contact is.
1: A brush contact is kind of as the name is you transfer a message as you pass someone.
0: Just in brief passing as if you don't recognise each other and just slip something into their hand or their bag.
1: Absolutely. If you look at, for example, Hanson, the FBI by if you look at how he was caught, you can see you can see the court papers, you can see all the dead letter drop venues, all the photographs that the FBI captured. So Robert Hansen's a good one to actually research when you want to understand what dead drops mean.
0: Yeah, Robert Hansen, that whole story was featured in a movie called Breach, if I remember correctly. Right, okay, I haven't seen that. I'll have to look out for that.
1: The ironic thing is that you, know, you can buy dictionaries of espionage, you can look at Wikipedia, you can, you can look at Spycraft on Netflix and see some extraordinary revelations. It's an area that you think is not possible to research, but it's, it's kind of all out there. What's secret, Jerry? is who are you actually looking at when are you going to look at them, and the specific method you're going to deploy against them? That's the thing that you know is the secret bit. The stuff around it is increasingly out
0: there. A part of me thinks it's strange that we're to some degree moving away from the use of informants. So I'll tell you, this, I was rooting around in Temple University's library back when we we got a, a robot now that goes and finds books without any kind of human involvement but back in the day we had old-school university stacks you know just you used to go and walk along and desperately try and find the book and I couldn't find the book I was looking for and then right down at the bottom at the back there was a sort of dusty book and I pulled it out but it wasn't the one I was looking for but I flipped it open anyway and nobody had ever taken it out you know I had one of those paper slips in it where you're supposed to stamp the return date nobody ever taken this book out And it was published in the 1920s by a guy called Frederick Wensley. And he joined the job and worked the same district that you and I, you know, worked out in the East End of London like you and I did. But one of the first things he was doing was on a patrol to try and catch Jack the Ripper. And he went on to become the head of detectives. And the book's called 40 Years of Scotland Yard. And he wrote this. In truth, all the mechanical ingenuity in the world will never stamp the criminal out. The only real method is to employ detectives who know rogues by direct contact, know their habits, their ways of thought, their motives, and above all, know their friends and associates. In the vast majority of cases, information can only be gained in this way. And he's writing that 100 years ago. And it seems weird that we're moving away from that.
1: That's a fantastic quote. I mean, if you want to go back a little bit further, I know people often quote it, but uh, Sun Tzu talks about the importance of spies. The ironic thing is, in the world of increasing encryption, you might get yourself to a position where actually you're, you're unable to defeat that encryption. You can't break it down. So you actually have to then fall back to informants, the ones who can tell you about the organization's um, setup procedures. and
0: Maybe that's where we're going to end up with this, which is we're going to go full circle from the use of informants. We're going to try the technology route. We're going to get defeated, and we're going to come back old school again to just you know, knowing rogues by direct contact, their habits, their thoughts, their motives, their friends, and their associates.
1: You're absolutely right. I'm sure that's going to happen.
0: It was disheartening to read that three-quarters of your informant handlers, the people in your survey, had said that intelligence had declined during the pandemic. But also, this recruitment has dried up. It's really hard to recruit people over the telephone.
1: I think if you've had a previous relationship with that person, they previously were an informant, picking up the phone and reconnecting is possible. So there's a chance to re-recruit. But you're right, I think, especially in the early days of the, the pandemic, most of the handlers who responded to the survey said there was an almost complete cessation. I think the learning from this pandemic in the future is actually that sort of complete cessation isn't isn't acceptable, really. You, we've got to recognise that we still need to maintain an informant stable. It still needs to be a sort of pipeline of, of, of informants. We just need to become more creative
0: about it. And, and it's the handlers themselves who flagged that up. Does that include prison informants? Because prison informants is one of the biggest sources of reasonably good quality intelligence here in the United States. And it's one of the areas where I know that Department of Corrections in a number of states and at the federal level have been very successful in gathering intelligence because you have some leverage and you have some options and you have some capacity to provide a reward system. Is that an area that we should seek to keep maintaining when, this sounds terrible, when the next pandemic or equivalent comes around? Absolutely. It's a, it's a critical area for
1: many jurisdictions. I've, I've travelled and advised in you know at least a half a dozen countries about, including El Salvador, which I know that you're a, a regular visitor to. It's an important area of intelligence. Prison informants can provide information on what's happening inside the prison so you can help maintain good order and discipline and help people rehabilitate while they're inside.
0: Well, I think in many places like El Salvador and many of the state prisons in the US, you can help people stay alive because internally in prisons, it can be a hell of a dangerous place.
1: It's funny say that. I taught prison intelligence in San Salvador. I went visited a place. You are a braver man than I, sir. Well, during the course, there was a prison riot and 31 died. 31 died.
0: Good grief.
1: So you, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember walking through the prison and it, was, it just felt that actually it was the gangs in control rather than the prison staff. And that's one of the problems. If if your intelligence system is so poor, you, you then have to sort of fall back on the prisoners themselves maintaining good order and discipline, which isn't it's a recipe for disaster in the long run.
0: So you've written something really interesting on informant recruitment for Crest. That's the Centre for Research and Evidence on Security Threats, which I hadn't actually heard of before. Who are Crest?
1: They're a body that funds research into areas around counterterrorism and security. It's one of the best websites I've ever seen in terms of academic papers they boil it down to bite-sized chunks and it's active in a whole series of areas not just in the area of elicitation of intelligence it's all about the extreme right wing online and, and terrorism
0: so what i like about this is that you and jordan noonan wrote a nice piece that expanded on all the different types of motivations for why somebody would become an informant for the police Which I thought was really interesting because it's a much more expansive list than we've had in the past.
1: You're right. The traditional mnemonic or framework was something called MICE, which stood for money, ideology, coercion, or ego. And these these were the sort of main motivational hooks.
0: Money, ideology, coercion, and ego, which are pretty much the the only reasons that I go to work. But yeah, carry on.
1: (laughs) So now what myself and Jordan looked at and felt, look, it's much more nuanced than that. So what we did, we looked at autobiographies by informants and those people who've run informants. We spoke to handlers. We undertook research around why people said they were helping police. And we came up with a new one called fireplaces. It expands, I think, considerably why people might be motivated. So, For example, for financial reasons, ideological reasons. It might be for revenge.
0: How can source handlers use an understanding of the motivation how can they use this better in their, in their work? How can this actually be beneficial? I mean, isn't it just enough to know, okay, they want to be an informant, so tell me what you've got.
1: It isn't enough. If you're going to run that informant effectively, you, you want to retain the relationship or sustain the relationship when you think something's going on there. So if an informant's motivation to provide information to you is to actually get himself access to the sort of questions the police are asking about his organised crime gang, you want to know that, don't you? he or she is trying to tap you for information just by listening to the sort of questions you're asking around tasking.
0: So what you're saying here is that one of the reasons that somebody might offer to become a criminal informant is simply to gain more intel on the police?
1: Yeah, I mean, the informant relationship provides an opportunity for counter-penetration. So they're attempting to get into you rather than police trying to get into their organised crime gang.
0: That's some Machiavellian shit right there, isn't it?
1: Well, would you believe it happens? And there's been a number of cases where there's been a high level of volunteers walk-ins as are known who've um, provided great information but that access is purely for their own purposes.
0: As we were talking about John le Carre one of the lesser appreciated John le Carre novels is The Russia House and a whole key part of that centres around a list of questions that British and American intelligence have for uh, an informant. And the questions themselves give away so much about what they know and what they don't know. The, the questions themselves are hugely valuable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we have to be kind of careful of: is that it should be a one-way flow of information.
0: Well, I should have actually prefaced that with spoiler alert.
1: <laughs> Look, I mean, if, uh, I mean, yeah, I know you like your movies. Have you have you watched a... Zero Dark Thirty.
0: Yes, the story of the eventual uh, demise of Osama bin Laden. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And and during the uh, story, you see, based on true facts, somebody dangled themselves in front of American intelligence agencies to become an informant, evidence of the fact he's close to the al-Qaeda leadership. And what he was trying to do was to secure access. And tragically, once he got access to the base, he eventually blew himself up and killed seven members of the intelligence agencies and, and wounded many, many others. Yeah, the mnemonic provides 10 other forms of motivation. The interesting thing about this also, Jerry, is the fact that it's quite rare for an informant to have just one motivational hook. You, you might get someone who does it for the ideological reasons or moral reasons, but he also is doing it for the money. Informant's motivation
0: changes during the nature of the relationship. So they could start by becoming an informant for adversarial reasons. Yep. Yeah. And I would tend to be probably suspicious of those reasons if you felt that there was some coercion. But then if you build a rapport with them, then their motivation changes. Is it something like that?
1: Something like that. For example, they might provide information to get a reduced sentence. Once they've then gone to court and been given their sentence, what you find sometimes is that a number of those continue in the relationship. So their original motivation, which was a reduced sentence, is spent. Now they're doing it because they enjoy working for you. They feel as though the provision of information is productive and they're also potentially earning money out of it.
0: So it's the FIREPLACES acronym. People might become police informants for financial, ideological, revenge purposes, excitement, uh, protection, uh, lifestyle, or to get access, which is what we were just talking about, coercion, ego or sentence, to reduce the, a sentence, as you were just saying. But the, the one that really I found a little fascinating was Walter Mitty informants and these are people who become informants simply to fuel their their own ego and for anybody who doesn't know Walter Mitty uh, that that comes from a, a well a book originally I believe or a short story but then became a movie called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty do you remember the original with Danny Kaye back from the 1940s and then it was remade as a completely different kind of film by Ben Stiller in 2013 and I, I will highlight that one only because it has a really good soundtrack. But I mean, how many times have you run across people who are sort of basically selling out drug dealing networks, purely for the, for the Walter Mitty ego sense of being a police informant?
1: well i suppose there's varying degrees i think at one end the walter mitty where they're not quite on the same planet and you you'd have to get a question whether you would be running them unless they gave you exceptional information but there's others who quite enjoy the buzz of providing information and seeing the police response in fact there's a recent case as a royal commission in victoria in australia with the case of lawyer x and in that case there was reading around it the suggestion was that Part of the reason why she was providing information she got a buzz out the fact there was a, an operational response.
0: Isn't there a risk that you can run into a disproportionate operational response simply to fuel their ego? And I'm partly raising that question because we have had a few instances, have you heard of this issue of swatting in the United States, where somebody calls in a fake incident to somebody's home claiming they see somebody with a gun or they're threatening somebody, just to elicit a response from a SWAT team? which has had some fatal consequences, uh, some tragic fatal consequences in a few cases. But isn't there the risk here that when ego is coming into play that we can get a disproportionate police response because of questionable motivational methods or purposes on the part of the informant?
1: Well, yeah, potentially. But what I would say there, Jay, the difference is, is that you're not going to get an operational response if the information is poor. No law enforcement agency would, I hope, Act simply on the word of an informant. Well, we would hope, right? Fingers yeah, crossed. I, I, th- because, I, I think now know, this, look, Things have I, happened. Absolutely. But I think now, if you're dealing with. You know, you've got workforces in the UK that are 20% less than they were in 2010. You, you simply don't have the resources to have a sort of scattergun. So you're seeking to corroborate and triangulate different sources to make sure, yeah, let, let's go for that one. You're absolutely right, though, Jerry, to say, yeah, you know, we need. There needs to be caution. So if someone's providing information on, on revenge, it could you could look at that two ways. You could say, How can we trust someone if they're providing that information for revenge? Well, you can look at it from a perspective of if they're so determined to remove that person from the streets, for example, they might be someone who might be harming them or their family, it's in their interest to provide the best quality intelligence possible for the police to be able to action it.
0: I do remember I uh, I was at, you know, the East End of London, I was at the recently closed down Hotel Whiskey Borough police station front counter. And a very attractive woman strode into the front of the police station, came over to see me when I was the station officer and said, I want to speak to a detective. And I said, why? And she said, because my husband's one of the leading drug dealers in this area and he's having an affair and I want to tell you everything about that bastard. (laughs) That is a solid revenge motivation. But some of the other revenge motivations can be much more specific. I mean, you can also be taking out other groups of drug dealers to to improve your business, and that's more challenging, right? Yeah, absolutely. If I just perhaps revisit what you just said there about the um, domestic partner, it is revenge,
1: but it's also a good example of motivation being nuanced. It's also about protection, because by passing that information to the police, what they're seeking to do is to protect themselves from that person in the future. So if we can action the intelligence, put them away in prison, what you've got there is both protection and revenge, haven't you?
0: Well, it's cheaper than divorce proceedings, right? Get somebody locked up for 20 years. <laughs> you sound like that the a man who knows. Oh, you know, with age comes experience. Yeah. So that's one focus to the revenge side. But also we have a lot of tit for tat killings going on in places like Philadelphia and Baltimore right now when you've got different drug gangs. And that's an interesting way to essentially take out some of the competition. But that's a very different kind of revenge motive from the, for the wronged woman walking into the police station. That becomes interesting from a moral perspective because what you're basically trying to do is to create more space for your own business, right?
1: Absolutely, and what I would stress here that just because you're informed, that doesn't mean it's a license to continue to commit crime. An informant who comes on board on that basis will continue to be looked at and researched by the police. If they start to get the impression that is the purpose, it happens all the time that uh,
0: informant relationships are cessated when that, becomes, when that becomes clear. I mean, you've been in the position of being in charge of these things. Is that an easy thing to do, to know when to pull the plug on informant relationships say, you know, we're done, this is getting too risky for the police service?
1: Pulling the plug can be based on a number of reasons. First of all, the informants' access to intelligence dries up. Sometimes we cessate because we've got better informants than them. We sometimes cessate because the risk to themselves is far too great. They might be willing and enthusiastic, but actually they're not match fit enough to be able to kind of Operate at that level of, of of criminality, so that would be a concern.
0: I've done some work with DEA guys in Central America who have lost informants in some of the most horrific circumstances. Yes, when they've been discovered.
1: Yeah, and that's really important. And that's a good example that you just share there. That actually, it's not the movies, is it? This is the real thing. You know,
0: no whole families getting taken out in the most brutal circumstances possible. It's just tr- heartbreaking.
1: Not just the physical harm, but if if an informant's identity is compromised. You, know, you look at Northern Ireland with the troubles that go back generations. You know, the, the fact that someone's dad was an informant or granddad was an informant is it, still an issue for some members of that community. You know, there are significant um, consequences for inappropriate recruitment or continued use of, a, of an
0: informant. The nuance around this area, the, the fact that it's almost more of a craft than a science right now, It strikes me that there's a certain type of police officer that's a good recruiter. Do we know anything about what the skill set or what the personality looks like for those people who are good, confidential human source recruiters?
1: I think they naturally display rapport traits. I think they are active listeners. Sorry, what did you say? (laughs) They listen to the person, they listen to their agenda. You know, they're not trying to go straight to the intelligence. It's the same sort of person that you might meet at a party and you instantly warm to them. And a good example there, Jerry, is Kim Philby, one of the top Russian spies of all time in terms of penetration into British intelligence. And he describes the moment when he was recruited by his Soviet recruiter. And he talks about this person making him feel like the most important person in the room, not just the room, the world.
0: So somebody who appreciates the, you have to appreciate the dance before you come in for the kiss. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me say, as one of the few people who is working towards bringing more knowledge and bringing a little bit more science to this, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And, yeah, it's funny to connect. I know we've met a couple of times in recent years, but uh, to catch up with somebody we first met when we were but youngsters, teenagers back in Hendon uh, 30-something years ago. It's nice to see you, mate.
1: It's nice to see you. It's been a a privilege to be be part of your um, brilliant podcast series, Thanks very much,
0: Terry. Oh, that's praise I'll definitely be redacting. I'll be leaving it in. (laughs) Cheers, mate. Cheers. Take care. Thank you. That was episode 38 of Reducing Crime, recorded online in August 2021. I'll post links to some of Ian's work on the podcast page at reducingcrime.com. There you'll also find a transcript of this and every episode. If you're planning a lecture or two around the podcast, feel free to DM me at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe for a free spreadsheet of multiple choice questions. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow at underscore reducing crime. Don't forget the underscore for upcoming episodes. And as usual, be safe and best of luck.